right, if you have your Bibles this morning, we will be picking up our text in the book of 1 John. We'll be reading 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through uh, the first half of verse 10. And to kind of set the context, I um, would like to let you guys know that one of my favorite words is back in action. Uh, in August, I stopped using regularly one of my favorite words that I've been using for the past 21 years. Uh, in reference to my boys, and that word is fun, H-O-N. The word fun for me and for my family means that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of kind, loving memories that have been made during bedtime routines, during mealtime routines, uh, during bath time routines, during getting ready for school routines, and, hey, hon, do you need help with that? Hey, hon, it's time for dinner. Hey, hon, would you like to warm up by the roasting rug with a towel after your bath? Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of these memories of the word hun being used towards one of my two boys. It's just the word that I use towards our two oldest children. And then, of course, hey, hon, can you help me as they grew older with various chores? Hey, hon, can you take care of the yard? Hey, hon, can you help your mom? Hey, hon, can you unload the dishwasher? And so the word hun has come for our family to be this beautiful uh, memory, as well as an active term that means I have modeled a a loving kind of parenting towards you. In fact, your childhood is infused with thousands of these memories where a mom or dad has done something out of kindness for you, out of love for you. You associated that word, hun, and as you grow, now you begin to serve and help the family. And so that word fell into active disuse when both of our boys went to college. Um, I will refer to Trish as hun every once in a while, but not as common. Um, guys on mission trips get called hun quite a bit. That happens. Uh, it, it's, it's a special moment for us on mission trips. So if you're working with me, sometimes I will call you hun. Um, it's not that I've done hundreds of thousands of kind things for you. It probably just means I need you to lift the other end of the heavy thing. And the sooner you do it, the happier I'll be. So that's probably what's happening there. Uh, but with my boys, that word was used dozens, if not uh, hundreds of times a day uh, for the past 21 years. And it fell into disuse. And then in the past week and a half or so, that word has come back. So I've almost kind of forgotten about Hun until Katie came around and we've had him for a week and a half now. We're fostering him. And so I just naturally flipped right back into, you know, hey, Hun, it's time for this. Hey, Hun, we're going to do that. Hey, Hun, can I help you with this or that or those things? And so that word is a very sweet and tender word in our family. You probably have one like it. Uh, and, and maybe if you don't have that specific word, you definitely have that idea. The reason I mention that before I go into our text this morning is that so far we have covered about 40, 45 verses of the book of 1 John. <clears throat> and John has referred to his audience as Hun about half a dozen times. Actually, over half a dozen times. About every six verses so far in the book of 1 John, John is saying, My beloved little ones, my dear children, my children, my beloved ones, uh, he's basically, my loving, he's basically calling them, you know, I would say, hey, hon. And, and this is John's version of, hey, hon. He's saying about every five to six verses, uh, so far we've only covered about 45 verses of 1 John. John's using it about every five to six verses to remind. So the reason I'm mentioning this is the verses that we're going to be talking 
are very powerful, and it's, it's also easy for them to not feel very loving. And so from the beginning of the book, right up until the text that we're going to be covering today, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, it's important to remember that about every five to six verses, basically at the beginning of almost every thought bubble so far through the book of 1 John, he is using this term, my beloveds, my lovelies, my little ones, my children, my darlings, is an excellent translation of that text as well. Hey, hon. And so remember that, 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 that what John has to say, uh, while it is a powerful truth, is coming in this context where he is the elder statesman, he is the oldest living apostle at the time. We know that he lived longer than every other apostle, and that he's writing to people that he truly has paternal love and affection for. So join me in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. I'm just going to read a verse or two at a time, because we kind of need to chew our food slowly today. Um, I'm afraid, you can go ahead and read the whole text if, if you like, feel free, you're always welcome to read ahead. But we're going to kind of take it one thought at a time as we move through the text this morning. 1 John chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 4. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is breaking of law. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. So we've been talking a lot about what love looks like, about what obedience looks like. These are just the three common themes. Uh, the first few verses of this text, you'll remember, uh, fell on Family Sunday, and it had, Beloved, you are the children of God. So affirming of the relationship that uh, people of faith have with God through Jesus but just like we have conversations with our children that are very loving and are easily understood as very loving, we also have conversations with our children that are very real. Stay put. Play here. Don't touch. Knock it off. Chuckle head. We have some conversations, especially as our children get older and the consequences for their disobedience become more serious, where the conversation is had in the context of love, but we're talking about very serious things. Things that if they get it right, we know are going to help them have an amazing experience. And if they get it wrong, there are going to be consequences for that. And so sometimes we speak of very serious matters. John turns the conversation towards sin. Here's why. Here's the question that he is trying to help answer uh, for his first century audience as they are dealing in a context of false teaching. People are coming to the church, uh, jumping in on their hospitality, and they have aberrant or heretical things to say about Jesus. But basically, he's helping them answer this question. If I am God's child, what hold does sin have on my life? If I am God's child, then what hold does sin have on my life? Because false teachers were coming into the church, and they were saying one or two things. You are God's child. You made a decision of faith. You placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And as this verse just says, that sin has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus actually came, as the text goes on to say, to defeat the works of the devil. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't sin anymore. How could you? He has made you clean. He has made you holy. He has sanctified you. He has forgiven you of all your sins. And so because you have been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about sin anymore because you don't sin anymore. That's a heretical teaching. And some false teachers were coming through the area. 
And God's saying, lover, as I love you, you need to understand the answer to this question, what hold does sin have on your life? And it's not that you never sin. That's the first heretical teaching that he's dealing with. The second heretical teaching that he's dealing with is that it doesn't matter if you sin because the power of Jesus is so powerful that we know that the gospel teaches that regard that no sin is more powerful than the forgiving mercy of God extended towards us through faith in Jesus Christ. That is true. Some false teachers were coming on to say, heretically, therefore do what you want. If your dad is a plumber, you can kick in any pipe in the house that you want. You can plug any matchbox car down any toilet because you know that dad can fix it. He can fix it faster and better than any plumber you know. So therefore, you get to kick in all the plumbing. You get to flush all the things. Well, we know that, that we would, if, if we were a plumber and that our children were raised in our house, that yes, there are certain advantages to being raised with a handy dad. But that does not mean you get to flush your matchboxes down the toilet. Yes, dad can fix it. And he will. But that does not give you permission to behave that way. And so this is the other heretical teaching that John was beginning to address with his readers in First John. My beloved, my lovelies, my darlings, the ones that I care about paternally, the ones that are being provided for by God and by my ministry. Please don't think that you are now sinless and perfect, and please don't think that you can do whatever you want. We need to wrestle with the answer to the question, is what hold does sin have on you? Understanding that you are the children of God. And so he begins his text this morning by saying that, uh, defining what sin is. And he says that sin is lawlessness. Sin breaks the law, and it's breaking the law. Sin is described in many different ways in the Old Testament and in the New. Probably the best summary of what sin is is the idea of missing the mark. And so there are times, uh, it's an image from archery, and that is a very accurate summary of what the Bible says about sin. And if we think about archery for a second, there are two ways to miss the mark. You can be aiming at the target, and maybe you're new at archery, or maybe you're wobbly at archery. And so when you release the arrow, the arrow doesn't strike the bullseye. But it hits the target, or goes somewhere in the vicinity of the target. But it doesn't hit the bullseye because you're just not that good at it. Good at it. Your, your arms aren't very strong. You're holding the wrong eye closed. You're, you're, you're nervous. You're not quite sure where to place the tip of the arrow when you're aiming it. Maybe you're not compensating for the wind. And so one way to miss the mark is you're just immature. You're just not very strong. You're just not very good at living a life of faith. Right? You know what it's supposed to look like. You know what hitting the mark as a Christian looks like. Or at least you have an idea of it. But because we're a little noodly, we're not quite as good. And then there's aiming at something that looks like it's more fun to hit. <laughs> like, we know where the mark is, but someone built a snowman in the yard next to ours. Wouldn't it be fun to put an arrow in his brain? Why, yes, it would. And we're not even trying to hit the mark anymore. And whoop! And we let the arrow go, and we try to hit the snowman. Because that's just fun. And wrong. So there's two ways to miss the mark. And, and when the Bible talks about sin, these are the two big ideas. Sometimes we're just immature. We're trying. We are. But we still mess up. We still sin. Other times, we're trying to not hit the mark. We're intentionally doing the wrong thing because it's entertaining. It's fun. 
because sin is pleasurable. And so John says that sin is lawlessness. Everyone who commits sin breaks the law. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional. But you know that Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sin and that there is no sin in him. Jesus hits the mark every time. He has perfectly fulfilled the law. Uh, the, the way that the Christmas narrative describes this, if, uh, if you feel like taking a little tour into the Old Testament with me, you can turn to the book of Isaiah. Powerful passage found in Isaiah chapter 40. These words are not on the screen. And I'd like to share with you what the gospel message sounded like in the Old Testament. We know that the word gospel means good news. And the good news is that Jesus has perfect perfectly fulfilled the law, and that no sin resides in him, this is what it sounded like in the Old Testament. It was part of the Christmas narrative prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. This is what the gospel sounded like in the Old Testament, the good news. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You can almost hear the theme of Han in that, can't you? Hey, Han. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over, her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The promise that is found in the gospel according to Isaiah chapter 40, which is a Christmas narrative, is that God has taken care of the sin of his people. It is a message of it is a message of comfort. It is a time to draw near. This is where John begins when he begins talking about sin to his little ones, to his cherished children, to his beloveds. He continues. And, and verse 6 is a tough verse. Uh, verse 6 is one of those verses that there have been books written about, and you can read all the different books, and you might come across six different opinions. Or for as many different books as there are, there, there are opinions this verse. And we're briefly going to try and give you the sense of comfort that John was hoping to accomplish with his first century readers, even though he says something very challenging here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Woo! That's why I put this verse by itself. I want you to look at that. That's a rough verse. Hang that one on your fridge. <laughs> hey, let's go visit my friends. Yeah, they're Christians. They're wonderful people. Hang this verse on your fridge and see what happens when you invite them to church. Uh, wow, how do we take that? Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. This is where it's helpful to look a little deeper into the words that are here. Uh, it's represented in English, but another way to say this is everyone who stays with Jesus does not keep on sinning, is another way that you can read that verse. Everyone who remains in him does not practice sin. In fact, there might even be a note in your Bible. Uh, sometimes if you see little numbers or little baby letters next to certain phrases, you can follow that either to the middle of your Bible more commonly is at the bottom. And you might see that your translators, that your, your Bible translating committee, 
said that we put this verse here the way that we feel is very accurate, but we need to let you know that there's a couple different ways to take a look at this. And this is one of those verses. The idea of practicing or remaining or continuing is found in the word sin that shows up in this verse. And that's not really a way that we speak in English. That's not really a phrase or an idea that is communicated well with how we uh, have nouns and verbs and adjectives and adverbs, but it comes through very clearly in the original language. Everyone who practices sin or keeps on sinning has not known him or seen him. So what John is doing here, like he would speak to a child, is he's using some very powerful images. He's using some very powerful words because he needs their attention. He needs to understand that there are two edges to the heretical teaching that they're being exposed to. One says you never sin, so you don't have to worry about it. The other says your sin doesn't matter, so you don't have to worry about it. That's just not true. If you touch the hot cookie sheet, you're going to get burned. That's what's real. And this is John trying to say, that cookie sheet is hot. (laughs) We just took that thing out of the oven. And just because you helped me bake the cookies doesn't mean you get to touch it. It means you better be careful around that hot cookie sheet. And this is John using some very powerful words, like we would with our children. Hey, knock it off. Stay put. Be careful. This is So he's using these words powerful here to say we cannot be careless about or practice or continue in sin and say that we're God's darling. It just doesn't make sense. Why? Because Jesus came to remove sin. <laughs> he just said it in the previous verse. It's a pronouncement of the gospel that's found in Isaiah 40, chapter 1 through 2. Comfort my people. Speak peace to Jerusalem. The comfort and the peace come through the fact that Jesus removed sin. And so if we remain in sin, how can we remain in Jesus and experience the comfort or the peace of his message? And he's saying you won't. And so children, as you know Jesus and his peace and his comfort, and as you know that he came to remove sin, that he came to fulfill the law, you better take the law pretty serious. We better be people who are known by our obedient love because Jesus came to remove the sin. The message of comfort is directly linked to his completion or fulfillment of the law. Take a look. Isaiah continues. And it's just very powerful. Uh, So John begins his passage by saying why Jesus came. He came to remove sin. Isaiah chapter 40 begins by saying that the Lord is coming. He has taken away all the sin. And then John goes on to say what Jesus does. And listen to what Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 5 says. Again, it's a Christmas passage. A voice is one crying out. Instantly, those of you who have been Christians for more than 30 days, who is the voice of one crying out? John the Baptist. The last of the Old Testament prophets. Where did he get his sermon from? Isaiah chapter 40. This is the Christmas message. This is the Christmas message. What does Jesus do? This is John's, this is John's Christmas message. This, this, uh, John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Some of you are like, wait a second, that's from the Old Testament? I thought that was just in Matthew and in Luke. Yeah, but it started in the Old Testament. It 
Christmas message starts right here. Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The idea is that at the culmination of history, the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven and take up residence on the new earth, and all of us will join in a proclamation of how great the Lord is on a smooth, wide road. An actual smooth, wide road that the Lord has provided so that we may declare His glory. That's how history actually ends. It's one of the most powerful pictures of the removal of sin. Make wide the pathways to the Lord so that we may give Him praise, which means all of the low places in our life and all of the high places in our life, the things that cause us to stumble and the things that make us proud, fill them up and knock them down. This is what the gospel message was according to John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wild places. Make a straight highway for our God in the barren places. Not only is it a picture of how the world is actually going to end, it's a picture of what happens every single time someone says this. Heavenly Father, I am sick and tired of stumbling over my sin and exalting myself. I'm sick and tired of my low places, and I'm sick and tired of my made-up high places. I turn from those things that I now know are sinful, and I place my faith in Jesus Christ, who preaches a message of comfort. He makes the path level. I accept Jesus by faith, say it with my mouth, and believe it in my heart, which is gospel. Would you make me one of your lovers? In Jesus' name, amen. That's the gospel, people. It's a job of leveling the road, of widening the way, so that we may give honor and glory to God. It's how the world is actually going to end, and it's how the Christian life begins. Those of you who stay in your sin, who practice your sin, who... Uh, Everyone who continues sinning, you don't know the first thing about building a road to the Lord. How could you? You don't know the first thing. You're digging holes and piling up blocks. That's not what it looks like to be His lovely. That's not what it looks like to be His darling. That's not what it looks like. Jesus came to smooth everything out. Raise up the little places. Push down the prideful places. And you're doing the opposite. How could you do His children? So people who come and say you can play around with your sin, they're very dangerous people. They're very dangerous people. The people who say you don't have any sin at all in your life, you have a smooth road already, just because you pray your prayer, they're dangerous people. The people who say do whatever you want, dig a hole anywhere you want, pile up rocks anywhere you want because Jesus will come and make it smooth, he will. He will. But that doesn't benefit people. That's not, that's not how, we, how we express our faith in Jesus. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Earlier in this, in this very book, he says, you're a liar if you say you don't sin. <laughs> he says that. You're a liar if you say you don't sin. It's not that Christians don't sin, it's that we know to do it. But we, we, we level those places out. We repent of that stuff. We take it very seriously. We don't pretend like it never happened. And, and we 
don't say it doesn't matter that happened because Jesus forgave us. It's a powerful gospel. Powerful stuff. Hey, lovely. You are God's children. Because you are God's children, you take your sin more seriously than anybody else. Because you know what God did to get rid of your sin. How are you doing? Tough verse. You can buy the book. But I'll tell you right now, you just got the five-minute synopsis. It's not bad. And it's based from a Christmas message that began in Isaiah chapter 40. Level those places out. That's what Jesus is coming to do. If I am God's child, what hold does sin have on me? As little as humanly possible. It's real and it happens, but my Savior came to build a road that leads to God's glory, and I'm here to help. I'm going to repent of that stuff and move on as quick as I can. First John chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Here we are. Little children, my darlings, my lovelies, hey, honey, let no one deceive you. That cookie sheet is hot. That's how it is. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. What's interesting is that John refers to his readers as the children of God, but he never refers to them as children of the devil. Why? The devil doesn't create anything. He just digs holes and piles up rocks. He clutters up the way. The devil doesn't create anything. The devil doesn't have the privilege of creating anything. He just messes stuff up. And so we're talking about the children of God here, and we're talking about people who are not living a godly life, but even those people are not children of the devil. There's still hope for them, too. They need to stop digging holes in the middle of the road and piling rocks up. There's hope for them, too. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. We just read that passage in, in Isaiah chapter 40, that when Jesus does two things, before he builds, he destroys knocks it down before he smooths it out. Jesus is not afraid of handling business. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus as uh, he is the comforter. But you know what happens when you have a splinter? You can't just put a band-aid on it, man. you got to pull that thing out. And sometimes it's more painful to pull it out than it is just to leave it put. My wife is a sweet person unless you have a splinter. And then she is hammer and tongs. It's like, don't you care about me at all, woman? We've got some history. Ow! Brutal. I asked my children if they got my splinters before I asked my wife. She's serious about the splinters because she's serious about the healing that comes from the splinter of removed. Jesus is not afraid to knock stuff down. He's not afraid to create a mess. He's not afraid to raise a little dust because those level places will be filled in those high places will be knocked down, and that road will be smooth, and it will be wide. That is the message of the gospel. How does that actually happen in our lives? I love the splinters that I can take out on my, on my own, because then I don't have to tell my wife about them, and I don't have to go through that painful process. She's the kind of splinter removal where, like, she skips the tweezers and goes for the needle. Like, she's just that kind of splinter removal. And if I can avoid that, I will. And, and I like that kind of sin, too. I like the kind of sin that I can just deal with on my own. 
that I don't have to acknowledge, that I don't have to confess, that I don't have to humble myself, that I can just make the change and make it go away. And there are times that we're able to do that, where we notice a certain pattern of speech in our marriages, and so we go to a conference and we're confronted with how we're supposed to talk to our husbands, how we're supposed to talk to our wives, how we're supposed to talk to our children, and we're able to implement that change. And that's great. Uh, I'm thankful for those kinds of sins that we're able to kind of deal with on our own. But more often than not, if we're seriously going to do the work of construction in our lives and make that place where God is honored and glorified and it's like a wide pathway leading to the glory of God, it's not a job that we can do by ourselves. And here's why. When you're in the middle of a project and you're laying that wall or you're smoothing out that road or you're framing up that wall, you can't see plums. You can't see level. You're too close to it. You guys ever experienced that? You think you're building straight until you take a step back and you look at it. And you're like, whoa, that was not straight. And it's kind of hard for me to see exactly where I went off level, where I went, went, where I went off the plumb, but I did. The only way to build straight is for someone who has perspective to swing out. A little to the left, a little to the right, a little higher, a little lower. You have to have accountability. Accountability is key to the consistent Christian life. Accountability is the key to being that lovely of the Lord, that beloved child of the Lord, that we have made ourselves humble and transparent to men and women in our lives who love us enough to swing out and say, a little to the left, a little to the right, a little up, a little down. Did you get the needle? This is, this, this is not a pointer that's going to respond to Jesus. I've already tried. This is a needle pointer. So, can you help me? I can't do it. And accountability is the key. If we're, when we get serious about sin, we get accountability. Until we have accountability, we're not serious about sin, we're just playing. We're building, we're heading in the right direction, but it ain't level. Because we can't see level in our own lives. It's too hard to see it. We have to get perspective, we have to get some help. And if we're serious about living a life that pleases the Lord, and constructing a smooth and level path to bring Him honor and glory, then we're going to have some accountability in our lives. There's a number of reasons that I asked Kevin and Todd to join me as elders in this church. 50% of the reason is to keep me accountable. Right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody makes the right decisions every time. Nobody can properly understand the scripture and apply it to a situation perfectly every time. But with help from other godly men, my, my percentage goes up significantly, right? And so does the trust of the church. Who would you rather follow? A guy that says he's got it or a guy that knows he doesn't and is brought on to give help? I trust that guy every time. Why would you pilot in an airplane? Because the FAA knows that one, it's a good enough for the job. For a smaller group of people, sure, one guy can do it. For shorter flights, a guy can do it. For bigger airplanes with more people on board, at least two. Right? The church is the same way. And, our, and we need to be the same way as the people of God. Accountability is the key to consistency because to build plumb in our lives, it takes perspective. And then finally, 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. He's repeating the theme that we already talked about in verse 6. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. 
he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Please remember that when John is writing, there's a limitation of the English language. Everyone who has been born of God does not continue in or does not practice or does not make a habit of sin. Why? Well, we know that Jesus came to fulfill the law, take away sin, and that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so we know that God's children are not going to continue living in sin. How does that happen according to the wrapping up of this passage right here? Really confusing words. Really confusing words. At least it was to me. What is the reason for not remaining in sin? Because his seed remains in him. What on earth? I went through confirmation class as a kid. I was baptized as a baby in St. Pat Cathedral in Norwich. I got confirmed in the United Congregational Church in Norwich when I was 13 years old. I got baptized as an adult at the Elizabethan Alliance Church in Northeast Tennessee. I mean, how many seeds of faith do you have to shove into a guy before he finally knows he has the seed of faith? What on earth is he talking about here? If I have this seed, how do I know I have it? That's a really good question. Is that what you guys were thinking? That's what I was thinking. Because I want this seed. I want to know that I have this, right? Because I don't want to be living a life of sin. I want to see evident that I've been born of God. I prayed that prayer. Did you get that on your seed? Did I get the seed then when I prayed the prayer? I don't know. Because it's how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. The answer is in the Christmas story. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God remains forever. That's the seed. That's part of the Christmas story. It's part of the message of John the Baptist. When he says, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert, he concludes that same pronunciation by saying that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. That is the seed that is imperishable. That is the seed that helps us live a life of faith. What this gospel message found in the Christmas message in Isaiah is saying, what John is saying to his church, his beloveds, your efforts are good, but they will not complete the job. God has to do something for you that we cannot do for ourselves. We have to be held accountable accountable to what? His word. God's word is the seed that is going to make it very, very clear whose child we are. If I am God's child, what hold does sin have on me? Well, I know that there is such a thing as sin, and I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that Jesus forgives me of my sins. Those are very, very true. But I also know that as the seed of God's word is planted in my life, the more I understand what God has to say about me and my faith and my church and my family, the more consistent that fruit is going to be in that seed. And so this morning, as we wrap up our time together, 
The final thought is the power of the planted word. Because here's the reality. It's not a question whether or not we sow seeds with our life. It's not a question whether or not we make an impact on those who most of us. It's not a question whether or not that our decisions have consequences. We are always planting seeds. It doesn't matter what kind of life we live, we are always planting seeds. The question is, what is the seed we are planting? Is it the seed that comes from the power of the Word of God that will never fade, or is it a grass seed that is here today and gone tomorrow to the challenges of our life? There's no question about the seed that we're planting. The only question is, what kind of seed is it we are planting with our lives? This is some tough stuff. It's also some important stuff. And we like it when those who love us have the honesty to speak with us with the kind of clarity that John is speaking to his first century believers. And so please understand that this is a message that he is sharing and speaking with us. He refers to as his beloved children. Hey, hon, I want to tell you about sin. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that you never do it. It's not that when you do it, it's not a big deal. Here's what it is. It's not something you stay in. It's something that happens, sometimes because we're wobbly, sometimes because we're tempted. But it's something that we repent of and move through. Don't be misguided about sin. Don't be confused about sin. Don't be confused about the kinds of people who tell you your sin doesn't matter or you can do what you want. I care about you. I love you. This is what the guidance from God's Word and Sermon says. And it's a message of Scripture. It's the first message of Scripture. Repent and make the way of the Lord clear and smooth because you're unclean and hot on earth. I'm going to wrap up our time uh, by asking the Lord's favor on the preaching of His Word and the worship that was offered. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the word that we found today. It's not something that we would have ever written or come up with ourselves. There are ideas and concepts and ways of saying things that, that really get our attention, that cause us to stop and pause, and we're thankful for your guidance. We're thankful for the consistent preaching of the gospel from the Old Testament to the New by men and women of faith. Heavenly Father, this 